Hello everyone and welcome to Are You Freaking Serious? Well, you know, I was thinking today about renaming the show just for this one episode. I thought about calling it Believe It or Not. Now, I couldn't put Ripley's name on that because that's taken for a long time ago. But when we're done with this show today, you're going to shake your head. You're going to say, are you freaking serious, Bill? And yes, I am. We have to put a little bit of history into our show today, though. And I take you back to the 20s, the 1920s, okay? Over 100 years ago. They called them then the Roaring Twenties. Okay, why did they call them the Roaring Twenties? Well, because things were pretty hot in those days, especially in the stock market. Because if you weren't in the stock market, you were a fool. Everybody was making money. Kind of reminded you like the dot-com in 2000. You remember the guy on television said, I'm just laying here on the beach, drinking my pina colada, my Mai Tai, or whatever, trading stocks. Okay. I love that commercial, but it was really the epitome, that commercial could have been the epitome of what the lifestyle or the thinking was in the 20s. Everybody wanted to be rich. Why should we work for it? Let's just invest. And there was a guy who came along. His name was Carlo, Pietro, Giovanni, Giuliano, Tibaldo, Ponzi. That's right, Charles Ponzi. He came to the United States from Italy. He was perhaps one of the greatest swindlers and con artists that the United States and Canada has ever seen. Now, what did he do? He played on people's greed. They wanted to believe anybody can make a lot of money. And Charles Ponzi said, well, clients or potential clients, and he was a slick one, He said, I can get you a 50% profit on your money in 45 days. And if you stick with me for 90 days, I will give you 100% profit. I'll double your money in 90 days. Now, how is he going to do this? He explained it very simply. He said, what I do is I buy discounted postal reply coupons, basically stamps in other countries. I buy them at a discount. And then when I get them, I bring them over here and I redeem them at face value. So if I'm buying something at 60 cents and I'm redeeming at a dollar, I'm making 40 cents. But I'm a sharp, shrewd guy, me, Charles Ponzi. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look for the best trades possible and then I'm going to pass that on to you. I'll take a little slice for myself. Yeah, you know, I got to have a house in the Hamptons, maybe a, a studs bear cat, maybe, you know, a couple of girlfriends, a lot of money. Maybe I got to hang out in New York periodically, but I'll take just a small slice. You're going to get that 50% profit or that 100% profit if you hang in with me for 90 days. Okay, the first question nobody asked was, how do you get those stamps from over there to over here so quickly? And how do you find the discounts that are over there? Now, in today's business world, we call that arbitrage, where you can buy in one market and sell in another. Arbitrage is done all the time. Unfortunately, it takes computers. It takes quick technology. And back in the 20s, there wasn't that quick technology. I mean, we're going over to England 
and we're going over to France and other parts of the world. He even got Japanese stamps. Oh, yeah. And we're going over there by boat. How long does it take to go over to get what you're looking for, buy them at the right price, then bring them over here, sell them at the, at the inflated price after you've bought at a discount? Did anybody ever look at that? No, absolutely not. Because guess what? People were getting paid that 50% profit in 45 days. And then if they hung on and they said, you know, I think we're going to hang on for a little longer. Because they always tested the waters with Ponzi. We're going to try to take a little profit out, see what happens. Yeah, Charles paid me. So let's go in with more money. I'm not a fool. I'm going to get in there big time. I'm going to hang in for 90 days and maybe I'll maybe get even longer. I'll take some money out. Let's just keep rolling it with Ponzi, making more and more and more money. Unbelievable. Okay. Now, did anybody ever think that this thing could be a fraud? Of course not. They let greed take control. In fact, this was such a well-run scheme that the idea of, well, paying off customers, because that's how he did it. I mean, you got to ask how he did it, right? And what he did was he was paying the earlier investors using the investments or the money from the later investors. And then when they wanted their money, the later investors after that. You see, Charles always had a flow of cash coming in. And if people were convinced to, why are you taking your money out? You can double it in 90 days. And just think, you've doubled it again in another 90 days. Just leave it in here and look at all the money you're going to make. And they got their statements. They looked at them. And Ponzi sent them statements. He produced these things. And it showed that they had money. At least it showed it on a piece of paper. Now, this wasn't an original scheme by Charles Ponzi. This was an original scheme back from 1899 by a guy in New York City. He was a Brooklyn bookkeeper who used this paying the early investors with the later investors' money. guy by the name of William F. Miller. His nickname, 520% Miller, because that's what he always gave you. He took in, in 1899, a million dollars with a similar deception. Pretty good, huh? Well, unfortunately, his scheme kind of collapsed after about a year, year and a half, because a lot of people started wanting their money. Also, people started kind of figuring out, let's see, he just bought those stamps for me yesterday, but I gave him the money two days ago, and how did he get the stamps over here in two days? Hmm, no jet planes, no internet, no faxes, no moving money no moving stamps and all of a sudden there was a run there was no money to be paid out it cost his investors about 20 million dollars in an inflation adjusted basis for 2020 it was over 250 million dollars are you freaking serious absolutely but guess what as charles ponzi learned from william f miller well another guy learned from charles ponzi his name Bernie Madoff. That's right. Bernie Madoff. The guy was well-known on Wall Street. He was a president of the NASDAQ. He was uh, just a, a, you know, a wonderful man. He gave money to charities. He uh, did uh, speaking tours. He did all sorts of things. He was the epitome of the Wall Street financier. Unfortunately, 
Bernie took a page out of, <laughs> a page, he took the book out of Charles Ponzi's book. He just replicated it. And what did he do? Well, he was a seller of great returns. The former NASDAQ stock market chairman, he ran a decades long, not one year, but 10 years. It was an incredible scam. And did it just get the average guy in the street? Of course not. That's not where he went after. He went after the celebrities. He went after charities, financial funds, and yes, ordinary investors also. But what he was giving them was double and triple what the normal market rate was going back in the early 1900 in the early uh, 2000 what you would find from 2000 to 2008 or late 1998 99 when he started you would find junk bonds yielding 11 12 13 percent and he told you never invest in junk bonds you need to be in the smart things you need to put money with bernie madoff with me because i can make you a lot of money and he proved it he gave them great returns. At least it showed it on paper, much like Charles Ponzi did. Now see, nobody was interested in taking their money out. Once again, greed played the, in the factor. Greed played as a dominating force here. Why should I leave it in there? You know, you suckers making 7 8%. I'm making 30 and 40% because I'm with Bernie. Unfortunately, the market hit. And when the market hit, it collapsed in December of 2008. That was the great credit crisis. And as we all know, the market took a major, major dive after that point. The problem was Madoff's businesses couldn't recover because there were so many people who wanted their money out. And I'm talking about the average guy. I'm talking about the big name stars. I'm talking about everybody made a run on Madoff's business. There was no money to be able to pay people out. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You're paying the later people with the early people's money. That's how it was working. Okay, now he confessed. He got sent to jail. It wiped out people's life savings. It people's retirement plans. It totally decimated everything. But that's not my point. My point is that Bernie Madoff learned from the master, and then he expanded it. We're talking about, at the end of the day, Bernie Madoff taking in several billion dollars, folks. That's right, several billion dollars, to the tune of about $17.5. $17.5 billion. Now, the coin-appointed trustees were able to recover about $13 billion of it, but $4.5 billion was lost. And uh, by the way, when uh, at the time of Madoff's arrest, the statements, well, they were telling clients that they had holdings worth $60 billion. See, when you have the printing press, not for money, but for the statements, you can create anything you want. Yes, you can. Because when you're putting out the statements, well, you're in control. You're really in control. Are you freaking serious? Of course you're freaking serious. Of course I'm serious. When you're in control of the printing press. And in this instance, Bernie was the printing press for the statements. Now let's fast forward because I want to show you where I'm coming to and where I just shake my head and I want to say this is like believe it or not. Now, 
under Trump, Donald Trump president, he had the Secretary of Education, not a very popular gal, but her name was Betsy DeVos. And Betsy DeVos was very concerned about the student loan program and about the way the books were being shown. And what was being shown was that there was money coming in constantly that people were paying. and But the problem was that the revenues from the payments continued to come in below the projections. The actual real dollars were not meeting the original projections. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where the projections were something like $115 billion, and when they started taking a look at it, it was more like about $20-25 billion coming in. It was very, very weird. So what did she do? She engaged a former J.P. Morgan executive to take a look at what was going on. He was going to do really an in-depth accounting, a very deep dive, so to speak, and taking a look at the revenues, the projections, etc. And so what he came to was a very, very stunning conclusion. And this was most recently reported and that I found in the Wall Street Journal. And so what we had here was not just one administration, not just the Trump administration, but let's go back, or the Obama administration, or the Bush administration, or the Clinton administration. It was many, many presidents saying, continuing to take the position that the student loan program was profitable, when in fact, defaults were becoming more and more likely. Now, currently, what does the budget say about the student loan program? And this comes from the Treasury, um, and we're talking about cash infusions. Why is the Treasury having to send money to the Education Department? If money's coming in at what the budget assumes, 96 cents on the dollar, why is it that the Treasury Department continues to get a bill or a, a hand held out from the Education Department for an infusion of cash? And what we're talking about is hundreds of billions of dollars. Something's wrong here, okay? Something is very, very wrong, especially if you're projecting a 96-cent dollar back on every dollar borrowed. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's not the truth. Courtney, in his studies, found out that that number about how much is being paid back drops down from the 96 cents to about 20 cents. That's right, 76 cents off from what the actual return is. Now, how can that be? Betsy DeVos wanted to know how that could be. And so, unfortunately, he told her, Courtney told her, and this is what he said. He said the numbers are basically calculated in the way that would make Charles Ponzi and Bernie Madoff very, very proud. What do they do? Well, when the borrowers default, that's the students, the government takes those loans and instead of defaulting them and then writing them off or, in fact, going to the people to get the money, they just take them and they put them into new loans. In other words, the old loan 
is paid off by the new loan. So let's see. We've got, you owe us $50,000 for education. Oh, you can't pay it? All right. We'll pay it off with a new loan to you. So we'll just roll the new loan or the old loan into the new loan and we'll show it up on the books. When I started seeing this, when I started analyzing what Courtney's analysis was, it just looked to me two things. Yes, the Ponzi scheme. It's great. Okay, you're taking new money to pay off old money. That's the Ponzi scheme. But there's something else. Back in 2008, when Madoff was found out, we were operating under a thing called Mark II model, not Mark II market. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. There was a bank in New York City, actually it was Chase, and there was, and I saw this firsthand because a friend of mine took me to this particular building who was doing an analysis of what was happening. He took me to a building that was shuttered up, actually just shuttered, not shuttered up, it was shuttered. There was wood on the, on the, on the windows, there was grass and weeds growing in the parking lot. This was a four-story manufacturing plant that had been shuttered and was absolutely nothing there. No people working. It looked like no one had been in there for at least two, three years. But it was being carried on the portfolio, and I take that back. It wasn't Chase. It was Citibank. It was being carried on a portfolio of Citibanks that they were trying to sell as a real estate investment trust. They were putting out different um, entities where you could buy for your clients or yourself, you could buy a piece of this real estate investment trust. And in the portfolio was this wonderful picture of this manufacturing plant, cars out front, people walking in. I mean, it was an operation going crazy. And their value of that particular piece of property was something around Oh, seven to eight million dollars. Okay, that's running operationally. The truth was, as my friend took me to see it out in Long Island and took the, and drive around it, as I said, it was anything from that. They were running their projection of the value. They were even putting a cash flow on it that was coming in from the rent that was being paid. Nobody was paying rent. Nobody was in that building, but they were carrying it as mark to model as way it should be. If you mark it to market, they would have to say it was worthless just for the raw land that was there. Maybe it had a value for that, but the building itself was absolutely worthless and creating no cash flow, no income. But they wanted to unload that in their REIT portfolio. Now, I digress, but that is mark to model versus mark to market what you think it should be versus what it actually is. That's where we are with the Department of Education and with their student loans. We are looking at a Mark II model. Oh, well, the the student's going to pay it back, and he should pay it back. He's going to have a job. But the reality is now most of those people who have those, and we take a look at the numbers because I find them very fascinating, since the 1990s, we have seen the repayment of federal loans very, very significant. As a matter of fact, we're seeing on average a repayment of about 105%. But loans since 2006 are being repaid at about 70%. 3%. 
27% less than what was being, actually 32% less than what was being paid in the 1990s. Maybe people just had more, well, a feeling of responsibility. But irregardless, did I say irregardless? I did. I apologize. Regardless, what we're looking at is how you put that in. The facts that Courtney found was the payment from 2006 is at 73%. The federal government, the Treasury, is carrying it on the books at 95 to 97%. That's Mark II model not marked to reality or marked to market. And on top of that, what it looks like is we've got the old boys in the government taking a page, not just out of Madoff's book, but the old meister, master himself, Charles Ponzi. And they've taken a page from that. Now, here's, however, the President Biden's take on this whole thing. And this is where i got to take a breath. Why? Because this gets ludicrous. The Education Department under President Biden killed the Courtney analysis in late February of this year. That's right. Now, Courtney continued it, but we, the government, no longer funded it. And we, of course, now know who's going to be on the hook for all of this. Mr. Biden was supposedly from the way, way left folks getting rid of all the, well, getting rid of all the student loans. It's a nationalization of student loans. It has turned into one gigantic Ponzi scheme. Now, presented with this evidence, what did Biden do? He killed the Courtney project. He said his model, Courtney's, will not be used to value the loan portfolio. He's going to continue to use Mark II model. In other words, he is praying at the shrine of Charles Ponzi. Biden and his officials dismissed the report. They said, hmm, strictly a political agenda. Yep, a political agenda. I think that's what people said when they discovered what Charles Ponzi was doing or what Bernie Madoff did. No, I don't think so. I think they said, hey, enough is enough. But... Where we're looking right now, the taxpayers are ultimately, as always, going to be on the hook for roughly a third of the $1.6 trillion federal student loan portfolio. I think somewhere, Charles Ponzi has a really big smile on his face. Are you freaking serious? Till next time, I'm Bill Tatro.